the fiery red sea snake was writhing in the waves. I spotted the hundred-meter-long beastie as I was walking along the windswept shoreline of Orkney, a small island chain on the northern fringe of Scotland, 15 years ago. It was a huge electromechanical device designed to produce electricity by capturing energy from the ocean's undulations. As I sipped on a delightfully honeyed single malt distilled on Orkney, I imagined then that I'd just seen the future of clean energy. I was wrong. The company that invented the sea serpent went broke, and electricity from tidal energy remains as elusive as when the first crude prototype for it was patented 200 years ago. Even so, Orkney offers a useful lesson for the world's climate negotiators as they disperse from Glasgow a few hundred miles to the south. It's that energy revolutions take decades or longer if left to market forces. Governments must play a vital catalytic role in accelerating the energy transition. Has the COP Climate Summit provided policymakers a pathway to press ahead? Or will they be stuck treading water? I'm Vijay Vaitiswaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist, and I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we have taken a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies needed to avert extreme climate change. In our final episode, we'll look at the outcome of the COP26 summit. History has been made here in Glasgow. And what we now need to ensure that the next chapter charts the success of the commitments that we have solemnly made together in the Glasgow Climate Pact. Thank you. Did it achieve what it set out to do? And what will it mean for the future of people and the planet? 1.5 degrees is about avoiding a future for our children and grandchildren that is unlivable. We'll find out how it measures up to previous milestones. The world has been talking about environmental problems at global summits for five decades. So what are the lessons that can be learned from them? We'll hear from Gro Harlem Brundtland, Norway's former prime minister and a pioneer of global environmental dealmaking. And we'll talk to science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson about our climate future. Joining me to assess the outcome of the summit are Katrine Brahek, our environment editor, and Oliver Morton, our briefings editor. Welcome to you both. Hi, Vijay. Hello, Vijay. Well, it's been quite a ride so far. Where have we got to? The Glasgow COP26 climate summit ended in the very late hours of Saturday. There is considerable celebration in Glasgow. It was one of those cops where people walked away feeling like they'd come and they had a mountain to climb and that they actually managed to get over it with some compromises, but those compromises were worth it. Or at least they got to base camp. Is that fair to say? I was going to say, I think they had a good walk in the foothills. <laughs> I can assure you that the feeling as everybody was leaving Glasgow was most definitely we climbed a mountain. It was the we kept 1.5 alive, which doesn't mean that the world will actually stabilize at 1.5, but it means that the drive, the desire, the effort to knock a fraction of a degree off of where temperatures will stabilize, that drive is very much still there. On Saturday night, I can assure you the mood was celebratory. The view from the outside is different. Right? Yeah, that's that's true. And never seen more clearly than in the views of many of the protesters who were basically saying that the COP was a failure from the start and continued to say that. So what was actually achieved? 
One big achievement in Glasgow was what's known as this ratchet mechanism, the provision that's built into the Paris Agreement that requires that governments come back to the table every five years to up the ante on their climate pledges. And this year, they were due to deliver the best they possibly could offer for 2030 climate pledges. And when it became clear that that was not going to be enough for the 1.5 to remain alive, they all agreed that instead of coming back to the table in 2025, they would come back in 2022. So they've got 12 months to basically go back and improve on their homework. They also agreed slightly clumsily to phase down the use of unabated coal. That means coal where the carbon dioxide escapes into the atmosphere. And also to get rid of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Of course, my colleagues who write about economics and finance will tell you that all fossil fuel subsidies are inefficient. But the word inefficient was seen as a very important one. Some of the other nitty-gritty business that was being dealt with in Glasgow was dealing with what's known as the Paris rulebook. So this is the fact that although the Paris Agreement is actually five years old, the rulebook for it, the nuts and bolts of how it's going to work, have still not been finalised. Well, they have now as of Saturday night. And one important piece of that puzzle was the rules for global carbon markets and particularly making sure that any trading between countries will genuinely result in emissions not ending up in the atmosphere. So eliminating double counting. So if I grow a tree and then say, you grew a tree, someone comes in and says, no, no, one tree, one ton of carbon, it goes to you or you. No more of both of us claiming the same tree. Well, that sounds very promising if it's enforced as described. We also had some advances in the finance realm. Am I right, Oli? What came out of this summit? Well, I think briefly, not enough in finance. The developed countries had promised back in 2009 that they would have a flow of aid investment into developing countries of $100 billion a year to be split between adaptation and mitigation, which is to say emissions reduction, by 2020. That didn't happen. And the Glasgow Pact regrets that it didn't happen and urges everyone concerned to make it happen by 2025, which isn't the attitude everyone would take towards people who promised you money and then just didn't deliver it. There was the concrete achievement of providing more money for adaptation. But since agreements have been broken on that before, you would want to wait until it's in the bank. Yeah, I think cynicism is warranted here, isn't it? Oh, good. Oh, good. The one thing that was interesting in Glasgow is that the tone of the conversational money has shifted. So until very recently, the whole conversation around finance was very much framed in an aid context. Poor countries saying, help us, we can't afford to do this. And really what I heard quite strongly in Glasgow was a change in that dialogue towards poor countries saying, look, we're going to need to put a lot of money into mitigation. That's going to cost us more money than we have right now. And if we fail to do that, then we fail as a planet. But something positive did come out of the summit. Uh, We got various multilateral deals, including one involving South Africa, which got billions of dollars. Ollie, will you tell us about these multilaterals? I think that multilaterals were definitely, and by design by the British presidency, a big part of the narrative, especially earlier on in the conference. So you get deals on methane, you get deals on deforestation. 
cars. coal and cars and all these sort of deals. And the good thing about this is that this does actually add to the level of climate ambition. People totted up what was in those deals that wasn't already in people's NDCs, and it adds up to a couple of billion tons of carbon dioxide. And so that was good. So we've talked a lot about the ambitious goal of keeping 1.5 alive at COP. Is the dream dead or is it on life support? Very much on life support. The pledges, and these are just the government pledges coming out of Glasgow, put the world on track to somewhere between 1.9 and 3 degrees of warming with a median estimate of 2.4. So there is a huge gap between where the pledges were before Glasgow and the pathway that we need to be on in order to have a good chance of stabilizing the climate at 1.5. And you can express that gap in billions of tons of CO2. So collectively, the nearly 200 parties to these agreements need to find an additional 23 to 27 billion tons to strip out of their national emissions sometime in the next decade. So after Glasgow, with the political promises that we have now on the table, that takes 4 billion off of that 23 to 27. And the multilateral agreements add an additional 2 billion. So in total, we've knocked 6 billion off of this deficit. That gives you the scale of what needs to happen in order to materially have a good chance of a world that is 1.5 degrees warmer than pre-industrial. We did see a last-minute intervention on the attempt to phase out coal that brought Alok Sharma, the British host of the summit, to tears. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment, but I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Oli. What happened here? Can you tell us about that? At the very last minute, when the room for other people doing other stuff has been all used up, the Indian delegation required that a pledge to phase out unabated coal be changed to a pledge to phase down unabated coal, with similar weakening on the language about fossil fuel subsidies. And yeah, that upset a great many people, but the Indians knew what they were doing, and they knew that people weren't, in the end, going to scupper the whole process at that late stage for those words. And presumably, the Indians thought it was worth being painted as the bad guys. In terms of the difference between phase-out and phase-down, and phase-down leaves room for some coal to remain. Phase-out means at the end you aren't doing it anymore. And what India has successfully done is not signed a deal which says there ain't going to be no coal at some point. So what I'm hearing is that it wasn't a cop-out, as some had feared. <laughs> However, neither was it a spectacular breakthrough. It was a modest but necessary step forward in a decades-long journey. Thank you both. Forging global deals is not easy, but it has been done before. Next, we'll look at some of the most significant moments in global environmental history. But first, a reminder that if you're not already an Economist subscriber, and why not? You can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash climate pod. The latest issue takes a deep dive into what the COP26 agreements will mean for the Earth's temperature, and we'll look at the surprising link between antibiotic resistance and plastic pollution. Economist.com slash climate pod is the link to subscribe. And you can find that link in the show notes for this episode.
So let's try to measure what's been agreed at COP26 in Glasgow against what's happened at previous global negotiations. Ollie has been looking back to the moment the UN summit process began. Stockholm, Sweden, June 16, 1972. An international group of young people assembled today in Sergels Torg Square to publicize what they called the worldwide competition to pollute. They awarded a series of prizes to the Olympic champions of pollution. The first award for each category is a lead medal. At the first United Nations Environmental Summit, climate change was barely a footnote. I declare open the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment. But the context in which the subject would come to matter, that of global environmental problems which require international responses, was at the heart of what people were talking about in Stockholm. And so was the belief that they were issues which required a response for more than just national governments. The famous Stockholm Conference in 1972 was a symbolic beginning of a global movement. Gus Speth is an American environmental lawyer who set up the Natural Resources Defense Council and the World Resources Institute. It was impossible, I think, to escape the attention of civil society in those days and indeed since. The bad as the situation is today, I shudder to think what it would be like if we hadn't had an extraordinarily active uh, NGO community. In Geneva in 1979, at the World Conference on Climate Change, the topic got top billing for the first time. But the main environmental concern in that period is the ozone layer. Ozone is an invisible upper atmospheric gas that protects all forms of life on Earth from most of the sun's damaging radiation. In the 1970s, research revealed that chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, chemicals used in aerosols and refrigerants, had spread around the world and up into the stratosphere, where they could eat up ozone. In the 1980s, observations over Antarctica revealed the extent of the damage underway. The hole in the ozone layer made it very clear that the CFCs that were being used were responsible. Sunita Narain is the Director General of the Centre for Science and the Environment in Delhi. It didn't matter if one country stopped using it, if another country used it, it would still contribute to burning a hole in the ozone layer. A flurry of diplomatic activity in the mid-1980s led to the Montreal Protocol, which committed countries to phasing out their production of CFCs and other ozone-harming gases. It was signed in Canada in 1987. The industry opposition vanished in the ozone area after a point. And it vanished in part because DuPont figured out an alternative chemical to the chlorofluorocarbons that were destroying the ozone layer. Not every country joined initially. China and India signed the deal only after a fund compensating developing countries for giving up CFCs had been established. With the addition of those developing countries, the Montreal Protocol showed that global environmental action could be effective. And it's important to understand, I think, some of the big differences between the success in the ozone area and now you know, 26 years of lack of success uh, in, in the climate arena. In 1988, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was established to report on the scientific aspects of climate change, its likely impacts, and the ways that governments should respond to it. It proved profoundly influential. 20 years after Stockholm and informed by the IPCC's work, almost 200 countries came together in Brazil to renegotiate global environmental policy, including on climate change. 
the meeting at Rio in 1992 was when the Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed. It was a powerful moment to see that. And the U.S. actually stepped forward and signed the Climate Convention. It was the big meeting when climate change became part of the international agenda, when uh, the world accepted that we needed to come together to deal with what was clearly a common problem. It enshrined in international law the concept that rich countries have a greater responsibility than poorer ones to deal with the problem of climate change, both because they are more able to do things and because they are more deeply implicated in bringing the problem about. The idea became known as Common But Differentiated Responsibility, or CBDR, and it has proved contentious ever since. Never more so than at Kyoto, the third COP, in 1997. The Kyoto Protocol negotiated there required developed countries, but not developing ones, to cut their emissions. Don't let's skip over the Kyoto Protocol fiasco. Despite the fact that the U.S. had signed it in Kyoto, it could never get it ratified back in the Congress. The U.S. Senate is a graveyard of multilateral environmental agreements. They pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol, and the U.S. never really participated in trying to make it effective, nor to implement it at home. So I don't want to say that the conferences of the parties over those decades were a waste of time, but I would say that they wasted a lot of time. That epitomizes the problem with global agreements reached under the UN process. If a powerful country like America drags its feet, progress is halted. The problem came to a head in Copenhagen in 2009. Copenhagen was a debacle. Copenhagen was a disaster. It was one of the most cruel meetings that I have been in when you have seen outright open deals being made as bribes and as whatever. Copenhagen was an attempt to produce a deal which would move beyond Kyoto by requiring emissions reductions from some developing countries too. A response in part to the fact that, thanks to China's remarkable economic growth, developing economies were, by then, emitting more greenhouse gas than developed ones. Despite 50 years of global environmental meetings and the relative success of the Montreal Protocol, greenhouse gas emissions continued essentially unchecked with temperatures now quite clearly well above what they had been. Which brings us to COP21, Paris. 2015 in Paris, an actual agreement was reached and countries had real targets. But it's important, I think, to remember that this was never intended to be a a real treaty or a protocol under the treaty, just an informal agreement. And so any subsequent administration can thumb its nose at it, and and that's exactly what the Trump administration did. The Paris Agreement saw the whole world accept specific limits beyond which temperatures should not be allowed to rise. It also created a system where countries had to tell each other what they were doing to limit climate change, what became known as Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. Glasgow is part of a process trying to strengthen the commitments made in the Paris Agreement. But Sunita Narain is less convinced that Paris was a success. Now, Paris, to me, was an agreement where the Western world was gung-ho about Paris because they wanted a deal. And so we negotiated a deal which broke every rule 
it destroyed the principle of cbdr and that was a victory for the americans but most importantly it broke the principle of a rule based system and you have to conclude from their lack of success overall that this is not the way to go there's got to be a better way to govern for the environment at the international level than this uh, rather ridiculous process that has been created To put that process and the need to go beyond it into a richer context, I spoke to Gro Harlem Brundtland, the former Prime Minister of Norway, former Director General of the World Health Organization, and in the 1980s, the chair of the UN's World Commission on Environment and Development. The commission put together for that purpose wrote a report, Our Common Future, which is a foundational document in the field of sustainable development. Her work also led directly to the Rio Earth Summit of 1992. We needed to deal with the interests and the thinking of developing countries. I never forget when Indira Gandhi of India came to Stockholm and said, poverty is the greatest polluter. And, you know, that is still an important point today. If we overlook that aspect, we are not going to be able to move forward on sustainable development and on climate. You said that your commission recommended Rio, and you were, of course, at Rio. What are your recollections of that process? You know, what was impressive was that for the first time, I think, in history, a UN-based report like this had a global breakthrough. It was known not only among environment ministers and development ministers, but heads of state and foreign ministers knew And I think one of the reasons why we succeeded in doing this was that from the beginning, I also was very much aware that we need the attention and the support of the scientific community, the NGO community, also businesses. So we reached out across the board and had public hearings to have NGOs involved from the beginning. And when I have traveled across the world in, you know, in the decades following 87, I see the book, Our Common Future, in every bookshelf, in every office. So it really broke through in maybe 70 or 80 languages, and it's everywhere. And today, when you follow the COP26 or, you know, Paris, the analysis, the recommendations, what needs to be done is really the same as we said in 87. Is that a little bittersweet, though, that you made this defining contribution, which unfortunately, in some ways, is still relevant the best part of 40 years on. It's true. I mean, it should have gone more quickly. However, I remember when we were 30 years after 87 and we had the Paris Agreement, I said to myself that, yes, it has been too slow to get to 2015. However, when you look at nearly 200 countries, with very different levels of development that have to agree on a global agreement. It's not surprising that it takes a generation. Before we got to Paris, you were the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change and you attended COP15 in Copenhagen, which is often portrayed as a failure. How do you remember that part of the process? It was such a challenge, but it was also in a way inspirational because Towards the end of the conference, when things seemed to go really badly, some leaders of government who were there agreed with the Danish presidency that they need now to have meetings 
between heads of state and heads of government. And in this crowded room, I was watching what happened. And, you know, it's a memory that never leaves me. I saw one and the other minister, head of state or government, raise from the table, move across and whisper to somebody trying together to find some solutions. And I remember the poor Chinese representative, not a head of state, of course, he was the one assigned to meet there while the president of China was hiding in his office somewhere in Copenhagen. And it was impossible because he said no to everything, this young man. And then uh, the president of the United States, Obama, rose and left the room and went to the Chinese president and pushed open the door. I know he did. And they did agree on the two degree target. And that, that in itself was very important coming out of Copenhagen. And what do you say when people ask you why international summits on climate change haven't achieved more? Realistically, it means that unless we had had these summits, we would not have gone as far as we had. The world would have stumbled along without the pressure on each other that happens in such a meeting. So although it's too slow, it moves us forward and there's no alternative. And you gave us a good example earlier, but it is when it comes down to it about people in rooms pressuring each other into making decisions. Yes. In political systems, this is what happens. Certainly when you mostly have democracies assembled, they are used to having to try to find solutions and to try to find compromise and to move forward. And do you think that they lead or do you think they're reacting to other processes that drive the fight in climate change? Well, it's both, which is why I sometimes have reacted negatively to Greta Thunberg, for instance, when she says they are all idiots. None of them are doing anything. She's pointing upwards to the leaders and saying everybody is bad. She should have been pointing in directions of those leaders who are doing better than the others. But, you know, to say everyone is as bad as everyone else, that doesn't really get you anywhere unless you have a revolution, which is not in the cards. Certainly not a global one. (laughs) No. In the end, do you end up looking at things and thinking that for all the imperfections in what we've seen, you are still optimistic about climate change? It has kind of had its ups and downs, of course, because when things look bad for a long time, then you can get in a lower mood. But I have always come up from that into new optimism. Sometimes reminds me of, I think it's not actually Winston Churchill, but the famous quotation about democracy being the worst way to do things except for the alternative. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's it. That was Gro Harlem Brundtland. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more influential mind in climate diplomacy. It's clear that her faith in the process remains unshaken. Now, let's cast ahead to the future. Ollie and Kat, you're back in the studio. We've come to the end of this COP. What happens next? Well, the most obvious thing that happens next is that delegates are getting a second chance to deliver better 2030 cuts. So that has to happen by COP27, which is in Sharm el-Sheikh at the end of next year. That's first point of order. 
And also next year, we see the beginning of what's called the global stock take, in which people are meant to take stock globally of what's been achieved so far, what still needs to be achieved, and so on. My own feeling is that this extremely complicated process is probably not going to be as important as it was imagined to be in the original Paris Agreement, because we've moved from these sort of like five-year cycles into now at least a faster cycle for this, I think we are getting closer to a sense of rolling stock take. I have slightly different feelings about that. I think there is definitely a rolling stock take that's particularly being done by civil society, right? All of these kind of big reports coming out of NGOs, the UN and the UNEP on its emissions gap report, kind of do the work of a stock take. But what the global stock take is meant to do is kind of do what the IPCC does for climate science. Ultimately, the point is really just to keep the pressure up because we know that ambition and movement on climate change goes, ebbs and flows. And really what they're trying to do now is build bits of text in that keeps the momentum going. We do get two more chunks of the current Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report coming out next year on impacts and on strategies and economics. So to some extent, I find it hard to think the global stock take is going to add very much to that. But I can quite see your point that it's a route to get that language into the UNFCCC process. And that's certainly true. So what are some of the ways that accountability and transparency can be increased on these areas? One of the interesting things is the increasing potential for satellite observations, particularly satellite observations tied into networks of ground-based measurements of the atmosphere. There's better satellite technology now for actually seeing where emissions come from, specifically on methane, but also on other gases and possibly on carbon dioxide. Some people are claiming you'll be able to look at carbon dioxide emissions on a facility-by-facility basis. And I think that will change the context in which people see some of these stock-taking issues. I don't think it necessarily will change the accountability structure, but it will provide people with information and the role of civil society in all this suggests that that information will be put to at least some use. But let's not fall into the trap that the cops often fall into. So this is all about mitigation, which is really important. But an additional thing that the global stock take is going to do is also do a stock take on adaptation and finance. So it's sort of that big picture. We don't just need to have accountability on cutting emissions. Importantly, because the impacts of climate change are hitting us thick and fast, we also need accountability on adaptation. So in the scheme of coppery, how important is the COP just ended compared to others that we've seen before? It's a step forward. It's not a giant leap forward. By the standards of COPs, it was reasonably good and could have been better, but could have been worse. Yeah, for me, COP26 was a bit of a Paris plus COP. In terms of the feeling compared to other COPs that I've been to, it was similar to Bali in 2007, not as disastrous as Copenhagen in 2009. And but Bali still. was the setup conference for Copenhagen, yes. right? Yes. It had the kind of momentum and focus that Paris got, even though it wasn't establishing a new agreement. There's something about being in the COP at those kind of big COPs where you feel like the eyes of the world are on you at that moment. But really what you need to remember is that there is always one more cop. This Every cop is just one step in the road. Cat speaking, you understand, as something of a connoisseur of cops who can hold the cop up and sniff it and say, I see hints of Doha here, but maybe with an undercurrent of Madrid. And the thing to remember is there's always another vintage, except for the fact that at some point the sun is too hot and the vineyard 
dries up and the vines all wither and the wine is gone. So in summary, how were we positioned coming out of this COP as we look to the future? I'd say we are positioned slightly better in a radically worsening scenario. Yes, there is progress and there's not always progress at COPs. And if this was an open-ended process where it didn't matter when you got to the results, then this would be fine. However, there is this wall in the future that comes when the carbon budget for 1.5 has been used up and the carbon budget for two degrees is quickly getting exhausted. And you don't get marked in that context for the fact that you've made progress. You get marked for actually having stopped the carbon dioxide going up. My feeling right now is one of fragility. I think we are in a fragile political situation. I think we are in a very fragile climate. I take some comfort from the progress that was made in Glasgow. I think mainly the comfort is one of momentum and drive. I feel like there is a real growing awareness, not just amongst a wider country base, but also importantly, amongst the private sector, that the future is a difficult climate and at the same time that the future is decarbonization. But there is always a but in climate change. And I just am constantly left with this feeling that we are permanently teetering on an edge. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. If I had to be trapped on the Titanic, as it certainly seems that I am, I would rather spend it with you two discussing the arrangement of deck chairs, as we have seen in part a cup, but also, I think, seen uh, the captains steer the ship a little bit away from the glacier. So thank you both for joining us and for making this memorable. But before we go, we've had a positive note to end every episode. And Ollie, I think you've got something special for us this time. I certainly do, Vijay. Uh, for the final bit of good news from our series, uh, we thought we'd throw it to um, someone who thinks about the future, good news, and sometimes bad news for a business. Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction author. Stan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oliver. Good to be with you. Now, you've written about the environment since the very beginning of your career. You've written about the politics of climate change. And last year, you published a novel called The Ministry for the Future, which is all about climate politics. Now you've actually had the experience of spending two weeks at COP26. How does the reality match up to your imaginings? It's more articulated <laughs> and slow, but I was impressed by the process itself. Mainly, I'm thinking to myself, we don't have a good alternative, that we have a global problem, a biosphere problem. We've got a nation-state system and we've got global capitalism. So the tools for dealing with the problem are not really adequate to the problem itself. And so we have the Paris Agreement, and it's what we've got, and we have to do what we can with it. Your novel, The Ministry for the Future, which The Economist actually made a book of the year last year, deals with climate change and the fight against climate change at all sorts of levels, from the UN to refugee camps over decades into the future. It starts off in a really dark place. At the end, it ends up somewhere, well, how would you characterize it? Somewhere hopeful? Somewhere that's the best we could hope for? I guess I would call it the best case scenario that you might still believe in. That if you say, yes, that could happen, then by the end, you're thinking, we could dodge the mass extinction event that we're trembling on the brink of and come to a decent human civilization. That could happen. So since it could happen, then we 
ought to make it happen. Having come out of Glasgow itself, what do you see on the bright side looking forward 10, 20, 30 years? What I learned in Glasgow is that there are so many methods available to us, technology systems, belief systems, all combining to try to cope with this dangerous moment that we're in, in human and planetary history. And if we were to successfully apply them all, we could get through this tight spot to a prosperous and equitable future for everybody. And then also all of the wild animals carrying on with their lives, all of us coexisting on a planet that was replenishing itself and providing us with our livelihoods in a way that is could go on in perpetuity. So the, can we get through the tight spot? That's the question. Glasgow gave us all the methods, and then if we can press onward and make it happen in the real world, we could really get to a, a good moment and the people of that time will have to look back and say, wow, they, they pulled it together in the 2020s. Thanks, Stan and Ollie. That's it for this episode of To a Lesser Degree. Sadly, it's the end of our series, but it won't be the end of our climate change coverage on Economist Podcasts. You can hear more from Kat, Ollie, and me on Babbage, the Economist Science and Technology Podcast, out every Tuesday and The Intelligence, our flagship global news podcast published every weekday. And if you want to hear more about climate change and energy from The Economist, let us know by reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts and telling all your friends. A brilliant team behind the scenes made this podcast series possible. To a lesser degree, was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway and Hannah Mourinho, with John Shields as executive producer, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. The Economist was founded in 1843 to take part in a severe contest between intelligence, which presses forward, and an unworthy, timid ignorance obstructing our progress. Nowhere is this battle more evident or more important than in the global effort to tame extreme climate change. We will press forward by putting the most challenging and important people and ideas in the world of climate in the hot seat. Keep cool, keep sharp, and keep coming back to The Economist. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.